0: Uh, George Abaheiter from our staff is up there. I didn't notice him last week. I love that guy more than I can tell you. And he's filming this. So do your best not to look so sour. (laughs) And uh, Paul and Cindy Rosario is here. Jason, what did you do last? Jason is a race car driver. And... uh, he was going 180 miles an hour last night and totaled his car on a racetrack. Are you saved, Jason? Yeah. <laughs> Jason does that for Jesus, and I love him too and, uh, and uh, am amazed. One of these days, I'm, I'm going to. Cindy dies every time he gets out there. Paul yells, and Jason puts the pedal to the metal. And you need to remember his name because someday he's going to be one of the truly great... He's only... How old are you now? 17. 17. One of these days he's going to be the truly... If you can manage to have a car without wrecking it every time, uh, he's going to be one of the truly great NASCAR uh, racers of our time. I... uh, Very much appreciate your allowing me to come twice straight. All this week I've remembered last week and the sense of it and the smell of it like Jesus and the joy of it and I've been looking forward to coming back this week. Thank you uh, so much for letting me do this. If you have your Bible, and if you're a Christian, you will, (laughs) feel free to look around and see who doesn't have their Bible. (laughs) There's something to be said for self-righteousness. It'll feel good even though you have to repent of it uh, later this afternoon. I've loved the worship here, and if you listen to that song just before I got up here, You don't have to listen to this sermon because that's what I'm going to be teaching you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're here not because we're good, but because we're yours. Remind us over and over and over again because we forget. Father, you know everybody in this place and you know the hard roads that some walk. May we hear the soft sound of sandaled feet. Father, you know the broken relationships, the pain that comes from it, the tears that nobody sees. May we hear the soft sound of sandaled feet. Father, you know the secrets that we can't tell anybody but you, the things that go on in our minds, the past that haunts in this place, may we hear the soft sound of sandaled feet. Father, you know the doubts especially at two in the morning when the demons come. And we wonder if this is really true. May we hear the soft sound of sandaled feet. Father, we're here. Meet us in this place. We are needy. Remind us that we are loved. As always, Father, we pray for the one who teaches that you would forgive him his sins because they're many. We would see Jesus and him only. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Are you working at getting better? How's it working for you? You're getting better and better every day in every way. Well, if you are, I praise God for that, and I'm glad. And you don't have to listen to this sermon. But if you struggle, if sometimes you want to become a Buddhist, if you think sometimes you're getting worse than you were when you started, I'm here to help. I have a missionary friend who wrote me last week to tell me about the family pet gerbil. His name is Jerry. (laughs) Jerry got out of the cage not too long ago, and they couldn't find him. The kids were screaming, Daddy, we got to find Jerry. They're afraid they're going to step on him and squash him, or the cat's going to eat him. And for three days, Jerry stayed lost. And my friend said, we almost gave up. He said, I was... uh, was getting ready for bed one night, and looked at my pillow, and Jerry is sitting on my pillow, <laughs> grinning at me. He said, Jerry evidently was lost because he wanted to be lost. And when he wanted to be found, he knew where to come. To me, he was tired, he was dirty, and he was hungry but he came to me. If you were here last week and listening, you never listened to me. You know that we talked about being lost and how to be saved and that it has to do with God's grace and that alone. Colossians 2.6 says, as you received Christ, and in other words, as you came forward, as you prayed the sinner's prayer, as you leaned in on Jesus, as you rested in him and felt forgiven and loved and promised, so walk in him. If you remember, last week I gave you four truth propositions that had to do with being lost. And since Colossians 2, 6... Or 6-2, I'm not a navigator, and I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> because of the teaching of that particular text, those four truth propositions have to do with getting better, too. The first you remember was dead people hardly do anything. Eric Guzman, who's one of our colleagues at Key Life has been reading a book this week. This week by Chuck C. It's called A New Pair of Glasses. It's one of those books written by a recovering alcoholic. His story's a dynamite story. He got drunk one time, absolutely plastered, almost died. And his doctor said, you do this one more time and you're a dead man. And he managed to stay sober for a little while. And then he fell off the wagon and for four weeks he was in a coma. He said when he came out of it, he thought, I'm dead. And he decided, as Paul said, reckon yourself dead. I'm dead. I don't have any ego anymore. I don't have any needs anymore. My life is gone. It's over. And for the first time in his life, he said, he was free to love and serve and not give a dink what anybody thought about him because he was dead. This is what he wrote. I'm convinced in my own mind, totally and completely convinced from my toenails to the top of my longest hair that there's only one problem in this life, one problem that includes all problems, and one answer that includes all answers. I am totally convinced that the only roadblock between me and you and God is the human ego. I'm dead. <laughs> Dead people hardly ever do much. Are you struggling? Are you working hard to be a better Christian? Are you trying to make an impact on your world? Are you trying to change those who don't know him? Give it up. You're dead. Dead people hardly ever do much. The second truth proposition that I gave you last week is that peasants... Hardly ever get a vote. We saw by looking at this text in Ephesians 2, and we're going to read it again, and I'll be referencing it as we go along. Not only does twice Paul say that we're dead, he says that we are under condemnation and wrath to our passions, to the bad stuff we do. And you don't get a vote and you can't help it. You are created in the image of God. And two people you never met messed it up for you. And you sin because you like to sin. Now, you've got a new boss, but you don't get a vote there either. Let me tell you something. The good news is that your boss is your father. A friend of mine said, Steve, quit saying you're working for God. You're not working for God. A worker for God at the end of the day got to go back to his own house. And when the business gets bad, he loses his job. You're a child of the king. He's your father. And when the day's over, you go back to the big house with him. You don't get a vote you know what I did this week? And you ought to pray for him. I have a friend, a little kid, he's seven. His name's Joseph, and he's dying at Children's Hospital. His father was a student of mine, and he died of Lou Gehrig's disease two years ago. I hate it. I go to see Joseph at the hospital and wake him up and say, Joseph, wake up. I'm here to pray for you. And he, and he looks up and he goes, you think about that. <laughs> and then he giggles. And I'm going to cry. God, what are you doing? And his name is Lloyd Boldman. He had a tremendous effect On my son-in-law, who was told in the church where he was serving that the music he liked was from the devil. My son-in-law is now a tenured professor at Stetson with a Ph.D. from Eastman, one of the rising young composers in the country. And Lloyd Bowman, by being out of the box, gave permission to my son-in-law. I went to see Lloyd. He can't talk. He's had a massive stroke and I prayed from the door and he stuck his thumb up and I don't know how that's going to work same week I went to visit Gail Gail has supported my minister for so many years and she's going to die this week she's got liver and pancreatic cancer and we giggled and laughed together when we talked about home And she said, I'm ready. And I said, I'm not. I'm asking God to intervene and I don't care. I want you around a little bit longer. And this week I've been crying some tears and thinking about a God that I worship and remembering that he's my father and that he's good all the time. I don't get a vote about Joseph and I don't get a vote about Lloyd and I don't get a vote about Gail and I hate it because I want to fix things and I don't. And I can't fix them. And so my boss makes the decisions and that's hard, except when I remember that my boss is my father and I go to the big house at night. Third truth proposition, sinners hardly ever stop sinning. Sin? You say, well, I know that's before I was saved. <laughs> You're still struggling with it. Man, I did for good for a week. I, was so, I can't even quit smoking my pipe. Thank God I don't drink alcoholic beverages. Although if I did, I'd be out of control and say what I think. Sinners hardly ever keep from sinning. I used to think there were bad people outside the church and good people inside the church. And we loved, have you read those surveys that show that the divorce rate in the church is as great or greater than that among pagans? Duh! We're screwed up people. The only reason we're here is because we know it. And it's hard to stop sinning. And it's not even the issue. Jesus is the issue. And so sinners hardly ever stop sinning from Ephesians 2. And then finally, the fourth truth proposition. This has to do with getting better. Believers hardly ever believe. Did you listen to Zach Van Dyke's sermon here a few weeks ago? When he announced that he had decided to resign because he couldn't do it anymore. You thought he was kidding. He wasn't. He couldn't believe it anymore and he wasn't good enough. And he thought this is insane and I'm going to do something else. I'm out of here. And you thought that was a sermonic technique. It wasn't. It was a fact. We record that sermon and we're making it available to people all over America so they can listen to the authenticity and the honesty of what Zach said. It's hard to believe this stuff. Yaquil Ekstein is a rabbi, orthodox friend of mine. And I was with him in Chicago when a lot of people were making anti-Semitic comments. And he looked like he was going to cry. And we went up to my hotel room. I shut the door and he wept. And he said, Steve, do you ever want to leave? And I said, every other day. I wouldn't do this for anybody but Jesus. And if you don't understand what Zach said, your religious views are superficial and shallow. If you don't struggle with some of this, then you just don't understand. If you don't identify with Zach as he looks at what God has called him to be and how hard it is to believe it and to walk it, then you're not there. Those four propositions will get you saved if you're lost. But the four propositions will also get you better. Now, let's look at the text one more time. Paul writes his fellows, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. One of the—Martin Luther's my hero. I keep his complete works on the bookshelf just above my desk and read them often. But one of the best things he ever said was a definition of sanctification. He said, sanctification is getting used to your justification. In other words, walking with Christ and getting better in Christ is nothing more, nothing less than allowing him to love you and getting used to being forgiven. Now, I have four points, if you want to count, and then we're out of here. First this, the desire to get better, listen up, The desire to get better is better than getting better. Look, uh, if you will, uh, at the 10th verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. How come? For good works. Me too. There's something in me that wants to please him. I struggle. Some of you say, Steve, you're so authentic. No, I'm just crazy like a fox. I'm screwed up. I'm sinful. I struggle with this and I don't want your faith hurt when you find out that's true. So I prepare you ahead of time. It has nothing to do with authenticity. When I say I have doubts, I have doubts. When I say I have sins and no, I'm not going to confess them to you. You're not safe that I struggle with and have struggled with all my life, that I have secrets that I can't tell you. I'm talking truth. But let me tell you something else that's true. You never met a man who wanted to please Christ more than I do. Where did that come from? Assurance is a big deal for Christians. Most of us are so neurotic that we... We're constantly in doubt of whether we prayed the Jesus prayer correctly, the sinner's prayer, whether we're good enough, whether we really understood the gospel when we came to him. Stop that. Now, there are those who say that the way you have assurance of your salvation is simply to remember the day when you ran to him and gave him all that you knew of you And you place it in the arms of all that you knew of him. They say, put that date on your calendar. Sit on it. Remember it. Mark it on. Mark it on the wall and say, unless God lied that day was the day he found me. That's cool. I mean, that helps. Then we reformed people have a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. Now, that doctrine suggests not that it's passive, but that it's active. And that as we find ourselves being more obedient and more loving and more kind with more good works in our lives. Then we are affirmed that we belong to him because it came to him from him and caused us to persevere. That's cool. I mean, there are some people that I never loved before and I love now. I forgave a guy who stole $75,000 from the ministry I was serving. I forgave him in two days. That's a world's record. I may have told you, I prayed. When I found out, I thought, God, I'm going to kill him. That was Friday, Saturday. I said, that's not right. Lord, you kill him. (laughs) Then on Sunday, I was praying, Lord, at least give him the hives. And on Monday, I was crying real tears for my friend. I don't know where that came from. And when I did that, I went, whoa, I'm a spiritual giant. I much belong to Jesus. Ordinarily, I would have gotten my gun. But what what about the others I haven't forgiven yet? What about the times when I'm not? What about the times I fail? What about the times when I don't have any perseverance to lean on? How do you do that? I'm here to help. It's the desire. When you became a Christian, God planted the desire referenced in Ephesians 2 in your life. And frankly, I never met a Christian, man or woman or child. No matter what they say or what they do or what they're smoking or who they're sleeping with or where they're going, I never met a real Christian who didn't want to be better than he or she was. Rest in that. That only comes from one place. That comes from him. I have an atheist friend, and she does everything bad. And she told me, Steve, don't ever tell anybody I told you this, but every night when I go to bed, I say, and then she blushed, good night, Jesus. And I looked at her, and I knew. That inside there was the spirit growing, giving her a desire. And that's enough. That's the promise. And then secondly, I want you to note not only is the desire to get better, better than getting better itself. Secondly, the goal of getting better is better than getting better. Look at the ninth verse. Paul says all these cool things, and then he says something interesting, that no one should boast. I've had it up to my ears with Christians boasting about their righteousness. Looking down their noses. Making obscene gestures at pagans who can't be as good as we are. That's not what this thing is all about. The truth is that that'll kill you. I said it last week. Your sin's your gift. God gave it to you. Thank him for it. You see, I never heard a preacher say that before. Well, you have now. And your obedience is your curse. When you know either one. When you know... I have a book. I'm not above trying to sell books when I'm in places. Coming out from Howard, Simon, and Schuster in February. It's called Three Free Sins. It's got three apples on the front. Three Free Sins, a new perspective on sin and grace. And the whole point is that we are so obsessive about being good that we've forgotten about obsessing on Jesus... We're so obsessive about our righteousness. That's all preachers talk about, and I'm one of them. It's all professors teach about, and I'm one of them. It's all religious professionals think about. And so we have this really stupid thing of trying to make everybody better as if that were the essence of the Christian faith. What do you think? Jesus died for you on a cross. It wasn't popcorn sins, okay? You needed it. Why does he impute the righteousness of Christ to your account? Because you don't have any righteousness of your own. And so, when there is righteousness being created, it's dangerous. Because we begin to boast and to be prideful about it. And, and that's bad. Thirdly, not only is the desire to get better better than getting better, the goal of getting better better than getting better. The promise of getting better is better. I have a friend, Rick Strawbridge, who uh, a young lady came to him and said, told him she was going to commit suicide. Generally, we go ballistic and say, oh, you can't, you'll hurt. He said, good. You ought to. She said, what? said, well, your life's not worth anything. If I were you, I'd commit suicide too. He said, look, since your life isn't worth anything to you, give it to me for six months. And at the end of six months, I'll give it back to you and you can get a gun or some pills or something, take it. But let me have it for six months because it doesn't matter to you. And she did. And at the end of the six months, she realized how much she was loved and how greatly she was forgiven. She got used to her justification. As I was saying before, I so rudely interrupted myself. The promise of getting better is better than getting better. Please note that verses 1 through 10 in Ephesians 2... That does not constitute a commandment for you to do anything. It tells you who you are. Rest in it and rejoice in it. And then notice what Paul says. He says that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And you say, I don't feel like it. My posterior hurts. I wish you'd end this sermon. Doesn't feel like I'm seated. Well, you are. That's who you are. That's a definition of who you are. And listen to me. And don't you ever forget what I'm going to tell you. You're going to get better. Philippians 1 6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to conclusion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you see that commercial where the guy's going through the different web pages on the internet? And then a web page comes up and says, you have been to every web page on the world wide web. Now go out and play. (laughs) That's what, that's the message. Quit being so obsessive. You're going to get better. You say, you don't know how I yell at my kids. You're going to get better. You don't know how much trouble I have been. You're going to get better. I didn't say it. God said it. Now go out and play. Be yourself. Be authentic. And I have one more point. The first is the desire to get better is better than getting better. Secondly, the goal of getting better is better than getting better. Thirdly, the promise of getting better is better than getting better. And finally, the surprise of getting better is better than anything else. really is. This is a text, and, and we've studied it so much that we don't see how unbelievable it is. Read this text before you go to bed and say, Holy Spirit, cause me to say, <gasps> I don't believe that. That can't be true. Read it again. <sighs> how about that, sports? Listen to me. Almost everything in life of any importance is found when going somewhere else say, Steve, would you say that again? Yeah, and slower for the slower among us. Almost everything of any importance in life is found when going somewhere else. It's what C.S. Lewis meant when he said, if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim for earth, you don't get either. And so this text says, you're going to get better. I gave you the desire. You were created for good works. Now go out and play. And you'll wake up sometime and you'll forgive somebody who stole $75,000 from you. You'll love your mother-in-law. You'll care about people you didn't care. The hungry will get on your heart and you'll go, whoa, where did that come from? And you'll go, way cool. And then who will get the credit? Not you. You're too screwed up. God will. And will rejoice in the presence of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. I'm finished, but I, uh, I always try to close a sermon with a moving testimony or story. And I found the ideal one was sent to me this past week. It's the testimony, believe it or not, from a bagpipe player. And I want to get it right, so I'm going to read it to you. As a bagpiper, I play many gigs. Recently, I was asked by a funeral director to play at the graveside service for a homeless man who had no family and no friends. The service was to be at a pauper's cemetery in the Kentucky backcountry. I wasn't familiar with the area and ended up getting lost and being almost an hour late for the service. I arrived and realized the service was over and the hearse was nowhere to be seen. There were only the grave diggers and the crew and they were eating lunch. I felt really sad and really bad and apologized to the men for being late went to the side of the grave, looked down at the vault lid, and not knowing what else to do, I began to play. The workers put down their lunches and began to gather around. I played my heart out for this man who had no friends. In fact, I played like I've never played before for this homeless man, and I played Amazing Grace, and the workers began to weep. I did, too. When I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. My heart was full. As I opened the door to my car, I heard one of the workers say, I ain't never seen nothing like that before, and I've been putting in septic tanks since I was 20 years of age. (laughs) I don't don't care how much you play Amazing Grace over a septic tank, it's not going to do any good. And I don't care how much you bagpipe over a corpse like us, it isn't going to do any good. Do you know what Charles Spurgeon did before he went to bed at night? A lot most of the time. He pictured himself in a coffin. Can you imagine what Freud would say about something like that? (laughs) Freud would say, using other words, Charles Spurgeon is crazy. But if you listen to what I taught you this morning, you know he was crazy like a fox. You think about that, I'm in.